I'm Rod Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. And this is Travis Kalanick, the man from Uber. A man who must have been among the more toxic CEOs in history. This is not a good versus evil story. It's a story where everyone's kind of shady in some way. You're going to get haters. You're going to lose relationships. But just stay after it and stay committed to what you're doing. I kind of didn't want to know these people. I didn't really like them very much. I thought that they were a bunch of arrogant assholes, to be honest. Uber couldn't have existed without the iPhone, and it couldn't have existed without the App Store, and it couldn't have existed without the um, this, the chips that Apple put into the phone that allowed uh, the phone to be used as a GPS device. The product was, was quite revolutionary, you know, it was magical. And I think we all remember the first time we took an Uber ride and then rather than paying the driver, just got out of the car and left. A swaggeringly arrogant and muscular name for a company, meaning over, above, beyond and better, Uber Alice. And a fitting name for someone as supremely sure of himself, as ruthless and single-minded as Travis Kalanick. You may take the view that having a cab ride immediately available at the tap of a button on your phone wholly obviates all the objections raised about Uber's methods and business model. It is, after all, comforting to arrive home safely late at night when the regular taxis are nowhere to be seen. That seems to be a popular view, for Uber provides 23 million trips every day. And the company is worth more than 62 billion US dollars. But who is this Travis Kalanick? Where did he spring from? And how did he get to be Uber, the rest of us? He didn't start Uber. Garrett Camp did, and it wasn't his idea to start Uber. He he doesn't really dispute that, but he came on at a very early stage and became the uh, the driving force of the company, bar none. And uh, did he have a quest for world domination? Well, there was evidence at the time that he did. He was. I, I also traveled with him in China. The company was uh, was making a big effort to to have the Chinese market, which ultimately failed. They were in multiple U- European and multiple Asian countries at the time. So, I have no doubt that as uh, just as um, Apple came to dominate its niche of markets throughout the world, Uber wanted to do the same thing, and that Travis Kalanick wanted to do the same thing. Adam Lashinsky is the author of Wild Ride, Inside Uber's Quest for World Domination. What drives him is the same thing that drives these uh, unusual and extraordinary entrepreneurs. They typically have a chip on their shoulder for for one reason or another. Somebody has told them that they can't do something, and in his case, he failed at it. He failed at being an entrepreneur pretty miserably, and they want to achieve greatness. And... um, Entrepreneurs can achieve world domination in theory in a way that politicians can't, other than, uh, you know, I don't know, Genghis Khan or someone, you know, someone 
Alexander the Great or so on, but uh, in a way that, you know, probably even writers can't. Um, but if you have a company that, that sells its product or its service in, in every market in the world, you can achieve world domination. It's not many do it, but that, that's the goal. Travis Cordell Kalanick is a San Fernando Valley boy, born in Northridge, California in 1976. His mother, Bonnie, worked in advertising for the Los Angeles Daily News, and his father, Donald, worked as a civil engineer for the city of Los Angeles. His brother, Corey, is a fireman in the Californian city of Fresno, and he became an internet sensation when a video of him saving a little kitten from a house fire went viral. I grabbed um, one of our uh, O2 masks and our bottle that we have for uh, our regular medical aids, and I put a child's mask on the kitten, and I went through an entire bottle of oxygen. It was about 15 to 20 minutes, and the cat started coming to. I poured some water on it, tried to get it cooled down, and it started coming to, shaking its head, shaking the water off, so it actually started reviving, and uh, it was doing a lot better. Corey Kalanick, mild-mannered, kitten-saving hero. And yes, he really is the brother of Travis Kalanick, the man who was forced to resign from Uber after hundreds of complaints about a somewhat macho culture of harassment and bullying. More of that later. Travis is like a handful of, of prominent Silicon Valley people that I've known over the years in that he's uh, perfectly capable of being incredibly charming and um conversational intelligent curious he's a he's a fun person to talk to when he wants to talk uh and that is you know that's the experience that i i had with him several times he's somebody who likes intellectual combat and uh i i enjoy intellectual combat so I found it to be quite enjoyable talking to him for that reason. When Adam Lashinsky told Kalanick he wanted to write a book about him, he was told he wouldn't cooperate. But Adam wore him down and got access to Kalanick and the other top executives at Uber. And it never particularly bothered me that he probably had a, an agenda with our intellectual combat or he, he was trying to achieve something. And I was trying to achieve something, which was to get a feel for him and to understand what he was up to. Kalanick was unexceptional at school, where he took part-time work selling door-to-door -door and started a little business helping kids prepare for exams. He got into the University of California in Los Angeles to study computer engineering and business economics, but dropped out to join some other former UCLA students in their internet search engine and peer-to-peer -peer file sharing site, Scour. Scour was like Napster, only it had video as well as audio. As we will see later in Kalanick's career, the company didn't seem to believe in the rules. And in 2000, Scour was sued for 250 billion US dollars by the record industry, the movie industry and the publishing industry, together alleging wholesale copyright infringement. Scour couldn't afford to fight the case and filed for bankruptcy. Connor McGee is the author of The Uber Fights, the inside story of the regulators versus rogue apps. Scour was one of the many file sharing programs of the time, like Napster, LimeWire, Kazaa. Uh, the big thing about uh, Scour was that you could search for any type of file. It wasn't limited to media files only. But, you know, this was one of the many companies that was operating illegally that uh, they spent years building. They wanted to transform it into a legitimate company, 
but the MPAA tried to sue them for a quarter trillion dollars. Um, they shopped around a deal with Michael Ovitz, the former head of Disney. Uh, Disney, uh, according to Kalanick, uh, Ovitz froze them from getting any other offers. And all this culminated into Kalanick watching a company he had developed for several years get sold at a bankruptcy auction in 30 minutes. And uh, I believe he was very, very bitter about that experience for years after. And it kind of shaped his mentality going forward, I believe. Kalanick hadn't been put off peer-to-peer file sharing as a business concept. In fact, he started up another one called Red Swoosh. Sean Stanton is a former vice president of sales at Red Swoosh. And when we went in to do Red Swoosh, um, I'd met Travis just as he was, uh, uh, I don't know, I want to say maybe several months into Red Swoosh when he and I met, and I joined him to head up his sales and Red Swoosh was a similar model. It was about a peer-to-peer pre-delivery of high-definition content. So there really wasn't a way to get high-definition video content to computers at that time. And so the idea of downloading a client onto a PC and being able to leverage that high compute power for multiple different computers uh, to pre-deliver high-definition content was really, really great. Um, and at that time, you, know, you had companies like Disney and ESPN that were, were pushing out a lot of sports content or movie content, um, but you had a lot of buffering issues that would happen. So the, the model was, how do you get around that buffering? How do you get high-quality pre-delivery of content? And that was the premise behind Red Swoosh. You know, um, Travis was a, uh, believe it or not, a, a, a very accomplished water skier, loved water skiing, um, also uh, very active in, in Wii when the Wii uh, game came out, playing tennis on the on the Wii machine. Um, so just, you know, regular everyday people um, that just happened to be in a situation where they saw an opportunity and they went all in to strike uh, on that specific opportunity. And I think that's a key. Um, that would be a common trait that I see across a lot of individuals like this is they have an idea. Uh, and then they just go all in on that idea to make something pretty incredible happen. Red Swoosh allowed users to share bandwidth to make downloading videos quicker. A neat idea in the days of slow internet connections. But the early 2000s was not a great time for tech, and the company struggled to pay its staff. Kalanick couldn't afford to pay himself for long periods. Yeah, I think that... Um you know, just the importance of, of being thrifty and being scrappy, you know, um, we'd find ourselves always flying on these low cost airlines to go down for customer meetings and whatnot, um, staying in a, in a less than marquee hotel if we needed to, um, just because at the end of the day, you just needed to get transportation from point A to point B and what was the lowest cost way to do that. And then when you think about a hotel room, it was always about, you know, we're just going to be there to sleep because we're meeting with customers and having lunches or having dinners and and going through those events so you're just there to sleep so um you know just being thrifty and scrappy and and doing whatever it takes and and not really um going through the burn i've been with other you know startup companies in my career too that were the other way you know where it was constant meals constant food service um, constant amenities all those kinds of things that really do become a drain on cash when you're an early stage company trying to grow and there was a time, there's multiple different times I would think um, that I've experienced here in Silicon Valley where um, companies would over rotate on spoiling the employee with all those extra perks, which just ultimately drains capital and it, and it shrinkens your, you know, it sort of shortens your runway of when you have to have a liquidity event, either be acquired or have an IPO or having an, another infusion of capital. But 
Um, I've seen companies do waste and I've seen companies be real thrifty. My experience with, with Travis has always been thrifty. Cutting costs wasn't the only way they saved money, though. The company also failed to put aside the tax due on their employees' wages, a criminal offence in America. When the authorities found out, there was a big bill to pay, and Kalanick had an even bigger bust-up with his business partner, Michael Todd. They both blamed each other for the tax, quote, oversight. Todd left and Kalanick fought on, at one stage moving back to live with his parents. Red swoosh looked like it was going down the toilet. I would say that you you got to be comfortable in being uncomfortable. And, you know, any entrepreneur is going to be faced with somebody not agreeing with your vision, um, somebody not agreeing with your approach, um, maybe somebody not even agreeing with the product that you've built, right? And you've got to understand um, how to filter that out. Uh, because if you truly do believe that you have something um, that is important and something that you're committed to and something that you feel truly has a vision and truly has a future, then when you get the naysayers, when you get the haters that come on board, you just got to use that as fuel to keep you going and ignore it. Ignore the noise, ignore the haters and just stay after your vision because so many people get bounced out. Um, they might have a family member that thinks they're crazy. Um, they might have a, um, a significant relationship in their life that thinks they're crazy. And, you know, it's not about just refuting the people that are influential in your life. It's not about refuting the people that care about you or anything of that nature. It's about your vision and staying true to what it is that you're looking for. I think that's probably the most key uh, because you will lose friends, you will lose relationships, you will lose uh, some of those kinds of things, and you see it happen a lot. In 2003, Microsoft offered Kalanick a paltry 1.2 million US dollars for Red Swoosh. As the company's debt stood at $900,000, that would have left very little for Travis. He turned them down at a very angry meeting and fought on until in 2007, the US internet giant Akamai bought it for $23 million. His faith and hard work had paid off. He was rich. Did Sean Stanton see any change in Kalanick after this milestone? Um, not at all. Um, and even still to this day, I mean, you know, naturally when you have the resources that he has available to him, you know, your, your living address changes, right? Um, what you do um, for the day-to-day -day aspects of your life change because you have the resources to, to do it different, right? You have a different house, you have a different lifestyle, you, have a, you travel a little bit differently. But at its core, I think that, that um, I've seen this with a, a several different, in good and bad, um, entrepreneurs that have had wild successes. Um, and at the end of the day, um, I would argue that, that most every entrepreneur um, is never really in it for the money. And I think that that's, it sounds funny because, you know, of course they're not in it for the money because they're, they're now worth over a billion dollars or they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on, on their own relative uh, exits. But at the end of the day, um, they're, they're visionaries and they're trying to disrupt the status quo and they're trying to do something different. So they're committed to the disruption. Um, now they just have resources. So like the money problem is off the table. They don't have to worry about money ever again. They can just continue to, to disrupt different markets. Um, but at the end of the day, they're still working 24 hours a day. They're still grinding. They're still, they're still getting after it because it's the, it's the grind that they've created as their lifestyle. You know, there's a, um, one of my mentors, um, that I listen to a lot and I participate in a lot of his programs. Um, he does a lot of, of interviews of some very, very successful people. And 
he interviewed um, one of the most profound music producers in the music industry. And that individual, you know, is, is working, you know, seven days a week. And, um, you know, a lot of people would ask that, that music producer, you know, why are you working on the weekends? Why are you doing this stuff? And the answer was, to me, it's not work. To me, this is my life. This is what I do. I'm passionate about it. I love it. It doesn't feel like work to me. And I think that that's a, that's a very subtle nuance, but it's an important one. And, and it gets to vacationing, right? A lot of people go on vacation to get away from their work, to get away from their job. And these really successful entrepreneurs, they go away on vacation to recharge so they can come back and get back to what it is that they do, what they love doing. So it never feels like work to them. You know, once you have an exit, once you have a windfall, you have a significant amount of capital that you've been able to raise personally because of the exit, does that change you? And I think it might change your zip code. It might change your, your residential house. It might change some of those things. Um, but your passion about what you do doesn't change because that's core to who you are. I'm Rod Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. Now Kalanick had some real money in his bank. What was he going to do with it? He bought a cool house in San Francisco, travelled the globe and networked with the tech community, some of whose small businesses he invested in, but with little success. His life changed when he met a Canadian entrepreneur called Garrett Camp. He's the real genius behind Uber. Legend has it that he invented Uber after having to pay $800 for three cab rides one New Year's Eve. Kalanick joined Uber to set it up and launch operations, but neither he nor Camp wanted to run a cab firm. They thought they were cooler than that. Kalanick was later quoted as saying, We were like, dude, I don't want to run a limo company, I just want a car to take me around. When the service launched in 2010 with the name Uber Cab, it was purely a high-end limo service. Here's Colin McGee again. Well, Uber started off as a black car service. Black cars are a lot like limousines. They're just, you know, sedans. And what they would do is they would go into cities starting in San Francisco and they would go to the local black car drivers and they'd say, we have this app. If you put your drivers on the roads with this app, you will make more money. You get an 80% cut, we'll take 20. That was the most popular idea for an alternative to taxis from 2010 through like 2012. But then other companies started coming up on the market that just said, who needs a black car? Let's just use a regular everyday car. People can get in their own cars and drive people around. Some of the early companies were Lyft, Sidecar, uh, both based out of California. There were a few others that popped up. Uber saw this kind of changing market and said, okay, we need to get in on this. And in 2012, I think it was, sorry, early 2013, they formally announced they were going to enter the market after several competitors already had. Black car service, limos, ride sharing, all of these concepts were not new, and crucially, none of them were called taxis. Taxis had to be licensed by city authorities. Even using the term cab is a problem, and the city of San Francisco very soon served Uber Cab a cease and desist letter, hence the change of name to just Uber. Taxi drivers didn't like it. Many regulators didn't like it. City politicians didn't like it. Customers did, though. They had a fairly standard playbook across the United States where they would launch into a city and become so popular that once they started to get resistance, 
they would appeal directly to either the city council or the state legislature and say, hey, you need to legitimize this service because a great many of your constituents want it and you're going to face political trouble if you don't. Uber launched a big PR campaign at each area. In the early days, they would kind of throw a party. They would invite uh, a lot of news organizations to come out, especially tech writers. They would have it at like a, like a five-star restaurant. Um, they would just try and get as much acclaim as possible. But the problem is that because taxi service was wildly unreliable at the time, that once they started, they instantly became popular. It really did not take a lot of effort for word to spread. And once it did, things would kind of take off on their own. Taxi regulators might stop, uh, step in and say, we don't like the service. This is not a regulated taxi service. This is a bandit service. It is not allowed. Some sort of fight would ensue and Uber would appeal to the masses to say, your city is trying to shut us down. You need to contact them to stop this. So in the District of Columbia, one of the first things that uh, a regulator ever did was do a, uh, they did a stop on a car. They essentially did a sting operation. They pulled a car over, they sighted the driver, they impounded his car, and then they fined Uber. I think it was like a few hundred, a few thousand dollars, something like that. And this turned into a fight where Uber would go back to the city council and demand that they legitimize the service or at least get out of the way of it. And they, I think they had something like 50,000 emails sent into the city council at one point in 2012, essentially demanding that they get off their backs. So they had an app, and they had a strategy to deal with local laws and objections from the competitors. But they needed drivers with their own cars, so they advertised. And so I was looking on Craigslist, and there was an ad uh, in under transportation that I noticed, and I noticed it for two reasons. One, it kind of spoke to me, and the other was that it was absolutely terribly written. That's Peter Ashlock, an Uber driver since 2012. It was a really awful, poorly written ad. And that was one of the first things that I told them. I just thought, so what it said was they were looking for a driver that knew their way around the financial district at rush hour in San Francisco. Well, then, you know, this this neighborhood, the financial district is the waterfront of San Francisco. And it, and it's, yeah, it's not a very large area. It's, and it might be 16 blocks or less. San Francisco's Chinatown is 16 blocks, two blocks by eight. And uh, the financial district is uh, close to the same size and area. So I wrote back and I said, I have no idea what you actually are looking for or what this ad is soliciting. You're asking for some kind of kindergarten level knowledge about one small neighborhood in San Francisco. And I drove a cab in the city for 10 years. I don't know what it is you're really hiring. What are you doing? And what do you want? And they wrote back and they said, oh, we want somebody just like you. And I replied and I said, oh, I'm, I'm terribly flattered. Who the hell are you? What do you want? What are you doing? What are you hiring for? What is this? I'm Rob Little. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. Stay tuned as we uncover more about the life and career of Mr. Uber, Travis Kalanick. Disrupt Radio. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. I kept wondering what it was going to take for them to get rid of him. 
going into battle and burning the ships as you're coming into shore. So there's no way home. You either die or you win. And I think that you really have to have that mentality. Uber took a number of highly unethical steps in this process. We kind of learned years later. They did things like they would target specific elected officials. They would take out campaigns directly against them. Uber's a toxic topic. He told me in pretty clear terms he had a lot of respect for the Chinese Communist Party and the way they did things because they were about results. This was Travis's attitude. He thought that was just wonderful. In 2010, Travis Kalanick changed his mind about not wanting to run a taxi company. Sorry, a cab company. Sorry, a ride-sharing company. He moved from his role as a backseat driver to take the wheel and became the CEO of Uber. It, it was highly unconventional. Uh, the very first time I ever went to any premises that uh, were the uh, Uber corporate headquarters, the first time it was on the upper floor of an abandoned department store that uh, nobody had done anything whatsoever to make uh, any more functional than being a raw space that had been vacated. And they'd set up a bunch of folding tables and chairs, nothing else. And so it was, it was pretty raw, pretty bare bones. And I didn't know what to think about the people. They, you know, when I came to them, I kind of had longish hair. I've always kind of had longish hair. I, ha I was wearing earrings. They told me to take the earrings out, uh, which kind of annoyed me, but I did it because I needed the job. Um, and I had to wear a black suit. I think I wore a tie. I, I may have worn a tie. I, I found the whole, the whole thing a little, a little bit absurd. Uh, you know, here, here are these 20 something tech heads in an abandoned department store, uh, trying to tell me how, how to live my life and, and how to run a taxi company, something that they almost immediately proved to me they knew nothing about. Pete Ashlock, Uber driver, said he got the arrangement with Uber to work for him like many other drivers around the world. The issue, he believes, is that drivers end up losing out financially. They're keeping the prices so low below the taxi business. My objection to that is that the ride that you take in an Uber car is, and what you pay for that ride is less than it costs to provide that ride. And the difference is being made up. Initially, it was being made up by the venture capitalists who floated Uber for the first several years with however many billions of dollars they uh, forced into that company. Um, and uh, the other part of that fare that is being subsidized is being subsidized by the driver. The driver is destroying his car for the sake of Uber and Uber is not compensating them. When you drive a taxi, you take a car from a company that owns a fleet, or some of those cars are owned by individual drivers through being in a fleet, and you pay a flat price for the use of that car for 10, 12 hours, and you pay for the gas. That is the beginning, the middle, and the end of your overhead for that car. With Uber, <laughs> My last car, which was my, I forget now, frankly, third, fourth Nissan Altima that I've had, uh, I bought in April of 2015. And at the end of 2019, I traded it in 
with 243,000 miles on it. 90% of that was Uber. I don't drive a whole lot on my own. You know, I drive to the grocery store or I drive to the movie theater or I take my wife out to dinner if I'm married, that sort of thing, and not much more. So that is where, that is how that price is so cheap because Uber is not paying to maintain the cars. The drivers are, and that's where your discount comes. In 2017, Uber had to pay $20 million to drivers who had been misled over how much money they could make from working for them. That was only in America, and of course it is now a worldwide company, with millions of drivers working long hours for low returns. By 2019, pre-COVID, Uber had reached 69 countries with over 7 billion trips. In the fourth quarter of 2019, Uber generated a gross income of over 18 billion US dollars worldwide. Many are in no doubt that it was Kalanick who drove this growth. Adam Lashinsky thinks he knows why. He, he worships at the altar of, of computers and he worships at the altar of entrepreneurialism. Whether he would articulate this or not, at, at heart, he's a libertarian. So he comes from this school of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs that, that really has a a fair amount of disdain for government. And um, I don't know if this was deep-seated in him before the Uber experience or if he came to it with the Uber experience, but no, I mean, thinking back to the startup that he did that competed with Napster, the pre-presage Napster, he uh, he never had any respect for for rules or for, or for or for the laws as they existed. He comes from the entrepreneurial tradition that believes that uh, rules are made to be broken. Steve Jobs famously was a rule breaker. Silly things like, uh, you know, not having the license plate on his car, for example, but but more more serious things like trying to do things that hadn't been done before because people said they couldn't be done. This is Travis's uh, mentality. He wasn't going to follow the rules of taxi cabs in San Francisco because he wasn't running a taxi cab company. Kalanick had learned lessons from his previous failures. What I thought was interesting about his story is that he, you know, he had had a very rough go of it as an entrepreneur before coming to Uber. He was, you know, in his view, he was screwed over by all, all sorts of people, in, including his his venture capitalists. So his attitude with Uber was, first of all, that he was going to raise as much money as he possibly could as quickly as he could, because uh, he knew that money could run out because money had run out on him before. And... Uh, even while raising as much money as he could, he was determined that he was going to keep control over the company. The irony there, of course, is that he lost that battle. Once again, the, the venture capitalists got rid of him when, when it was time for him to be gotten rid of. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think he, he views himself in this um, messianic way almost that he is going to be the uh, the king of the hill and that nothing will stand in his way. So he's, you know, you could compare him to the uh, American baseball players who who used steroids or to Lance Armstrong on, uh, as a cyclist who they were going to be the best. And if they had to break the rules and lie about it, well, so be it. I never made the connection between him and Lance Armstrong until just now, but I, I know Travis well. I've met Lance Armstrong. I've read a lot about him. It's a very similar comparison. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to break the rules. When you challenge me on breaking the rules, I'm going to lie to you about it, or I'm going to try to change the subject. And I'm going to keep doing that as long as I need to, 
to succeed. And if I if 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 um if I can't do that anymore, well then I'll adjust and I'll do it a different way. Everybody knows their style of doing business, which is to say basically to the world, we don't need no stinking permission. We just work. We just go do our thing. So, you know, so they unleashed uh, Uber on the streets of San Francisco, never actually mentioning it to City Hall or, you know, to the police department. They just start. And, the, and then and then, of course, you know, City Hall says, hey, wait a minute, what do you think you're doing? Uh, and so uh, and then Uber unleashes their army of lawyers, which is their way of doing business uh, and bombards the city in, you know, minute uh, loopholes which is how they also do business. Peter Ashlock. As Uber grew, so did the stories of its ruthless corporate culture. Here's Colin McGee again. Travis Kalanick took a very no-holds-barred approach. Uh, he was very aggressive, very acerbic. He did not mind ruffling feathers or getting on anyone's nerves or just being obstinate. He wasn't really trying to work with anyone. What he wanted to do was establish a large customer base very quickly, become a dominant force, and then more or less become untouchable. Um, and it did not matter what approach he took to get there. There's a lot of reports of very unethical activity along the way. They had what was called God Mode. God Mode? What on earth is that? God Mode gave Uber staff, uh, select Uber staff, the ability to monitor rides in real time. In other words, they could see that a specific person was getting into a specific car and driving to a specific location. Uh, they did this sometimes with politicians. They did it sometimes with reporters who are going to write stories about Uber. And at one point, I think they're even threatening to use some of that information against reporters. So, I mean, they, they had a number of highly unethical activities in getting to the point of dominance that they got to in the market. For them, the ends very much justified the means. You can imagine knowing where politicians really were when they told their wives they were working late at the office it might be very powerful information. And God mode wasn't the only dirty trick they were up to. In 2017, the New York Times reported that for years, Uber used a tool called Greyball to systematically deceive regulators in cities where its service broke the rules. Officials trying to book an Uber during a sting operation were greyballed, which meant they might see icons of cars nearby, but no one would come to pick them up. Greyball allegedly used geolocation and credit card data, as well as social media accounts, to identify people they suspected of working in undercover law enforcement. It was used in cities across the US, as well as here in Australia, in France, China, South Korea and Italy. What Greyball did was, once they found a specific taxi regulator was using it, it would show a fake map of where cars were circulating so that if regulators tried to impound them or stop them, they couldn't. Portland regulators were so incensed by this that they tried to conduct their own audit to see how many cars they could find in their system. Um, Uber claimed that they mostly did this outside of the United States, and I believe the Justice Department later did an inquiry that went nowhere. But it's not really well known how comprehensive this system was. We knew it existed. Almost certainly it bought them some time to go to city councils and then later state legislatures to get what are known as transportation network companies codified into law. Uber defended their Greyball software, claiming that it, quotes, 
denies ride requests to fraudulent users. People aiming to physically harm drivers, competitors looking to disrupt our operations, or opponents who collude with officials on secret stings meant to entrap drivers. Kalanick also found that his support for President Donald Trump was causing friction inside the organization. I think his downfall started when he joined Trump's uh, strategy and policy forum. This was uh, in early 2017. It was an advisory group of Fortune 500 CEOs, of which Kalanick was one. And you have to understand, his, his base of tech employees were ardently anti-Trump. And they did not like that their CEO was having this relationship with the president. But then on top of that, there's just this cascade of events that starts to send everything downhill. There's a strike at the uh, JFK Taxi Workers Alliance. They did a, a work stoppage for an hour. And during that time, Uber ceased surge pricing, which is what they're supposed to do when, when some sort of market shift occurs that, that makes it difficult to find transportation. But it caused an uproar that led to the Uber delete campaign. I don't know if you remember that. It was the hashtag delete Uber. Uh, within days, celebrities were retreating this. It caught on very, very rapidly. And towards the end of this, there was an all hands meeting with his employees. And they gave Travis Kalanick a Google Doc titled Letters to Travis, begging him to kind of reverse course on, on where he was going with the, with the company. And then on top of that, Three weeks later, there was a former female software engineer named Susan J. Fowler who posted a blog titled Reflecting on One Very, Very Strange Year at Uber. And in it, she reflected on a series of misogynistic events, including sexual advances from a superior and a generally very toxic culture. Kalanick told The Guardian newspaper what she describes is abhorrent and against everything Uber stands for and believes in, and the company launched an investigation into sexual harassment. After that, the New York Times starts uncovering a treasure trove of dark secrets from their past, and things pretty much spiral downhill from there to the point that he gets shoved out of the company. Conor McGee. The deepening crisis over Uber's culture only got worse when, soon after in 2017, more bad news hit the headlines. Ed Baker, the company's vice president for product and growth, resigned after being caught having sex with another employee at an Uber event in Miami. It didn't help that emails from Kalanick surfaced in which he'd asked employees nicely not to have sex with each other if they were in the same chain of command. Otherwise, fill your boots. Then video footage emerged of Kalanick being abusive to an Uber driver who wanted to tell him how he had suffered when the prices of Uber Black, their limo service, had fallen. He'd been made bankrupt by it, he claimed. I, I lost $97,000 because of you. I bankrupt because of you. Look, yes, so yes, yes. You, know you keep changing every day. What you I, keep, you what keep changing every day. Hold on a second. What have I changed about Black? Huh? What you changed change? the whole business. What? what? You dropped the prices. On on black? Yes, you did. Bullshit. We started with $20. Bullshit. We started with $20. You know what? How much is the mile now? $275? You know what? What? Some people don't like to take responsibility for I their take shit. They blame everything but in their life on somebody else. why you an email else? for town car? Good luck. <laughs> he, got, he got in the wrong car, you might say. He got in an Uber car with a driver and the driver took him to task. The driver started confronting him and the driver recorded it. And he was a total asshole about it. And so he ends up, you know, being publicly shown for the asshole that he is 
with this argument with the driver, the driver that he's actually ripping off in the process. I mean, it's just it's just crazy. The low point for Uber and Kalanick came when an Uber driver raped a female passenger in Delhi. While Kalanick released a statement supporting the woman, the technology news site Recode discovered that his Asia-Pacific regional boss, Eric Alexander, had got hold of the victim's medical records. Recode alleged that he had discussed them with Kalanick and other senior executives who had been working on the theory that the rape had been invented by its competitor in India to discredit them. Soon after, Alexander resigned. I think it's well known, right, the sort of Uber debacle with um, Travis and all the inner workings, you know, of the culture that presumably came from him. I I have the impression that he has um, had some changes in his life. And so maybe he has had changes in like his philosophy and perspective, but certainly before the Uber days and in the Uber days, there was a win at all cost mentality. And you see that in Uber Um, inside of the company, um, the people acting, you know, like in a win at all costs in, in maybe uh, unethical ways and certainly in uncomfortable ways. Obviously, a lot of the topics around the discomfort, um, the terrible environment for women, that's all part of Uber's history. Elisa Cohn, executive coach and author of From Startup to Grown Up. Whether or not Travis Kalanick has changed, we will possibly find out in time. Does a leopard change its spots? But what is his legacy? Kalanick, I think, will be remembered for having done a, a pretty masterful and comprehensive job of product development. They made, they took that idea and they made his, you know, he and his team made it into uh, a globally successful and useful product. Uh, he'll be remembered for the art of raising capital because he raised a lot of it. He'll be remembered for, I think, um, stepping over the line of pushing the bounds of of government regulation and legislation. Um, I, I think entrepreneurs will think twice before uh, following his lead again because his brash actions, while it allowed the company to, to get established, um, caused a, a, a just a fearsome blowback that in some ways the company hasn't recovered from. I mean, the company is still moving along, but there's segments of the population who still won't use Uber for that, for the, for those reasons. Adam Lashinsky also puts Kalanick's success in the context of a boom time in Silicon Valley. Travis Kalanick built this very large company in what will be looked back on as the golden age of Silicon Valley entrepreneurialism in the sense that it coincided with this era of massive amounts of venture capital and extremely low interest rates. Easy money, in other words, for for entrepreneurs to start companies. Um, If I were an entrepreneur today, looking out over the next 10 years, I'd be very concerned that the conditions will not exist for me to do what Travis Kalanick did. And by the way, I doubt Travis Kalanick could have done it if the money hadn't been so easy. Kalanick caused chaos in taxi markets across the world. The business plan seemed to be to swarm into a city and undercut the local fares, driving other cab firms out of business, and then, once they'd all been liquidated, pushing up the prices. This slash-and-burn policy angered city halls, or at least those local representatives who the firm had not already lobbied with uh, honeyed words. 
In a sense, Kalanick represents the very unacceptable face of capitalism, wasteful competition, an almost total lack of regard for both his own drivers and indeed passengers, and a devil-take-the-hindmost approach to business. I dare say he would argue that sometimes the rules need to be ignored or torn down when they restrict trade to the detriment of the general public. But while you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, it isn't entirely necessary to smash down the entire chicken coop. Though I suppose, without a certain ruthlessness, you don't get to be uber. I'm Rod Little and this is Global Disruptors, a perfectly normal production for Disrupt Radio Australia. Disrupt Radio, tune in to opportunity. Disrupt Radio. Conscious Capital, better business for a better world. I'm Tane Hunter. My background is in cancer research, data science, and machine learning, what everyone is calling artificial intelligence at this point in time. We uncover the extraordinary stories of the change makers who are rewriting the rules and making the world a better place. To explore what's happening on the frontiers of science and technology and seek out stories of human progress. Conscious Capital features a lineup of fascinating guests, visionary entrepreneurs, innovative nonprofit leaders, and influential impact investors. We're focused on the solutions rather than the problems. Conscious Capital. Live on DAB+. Online and on demand at disrupt.radio.